Hello and welcome to episode number 19 of the Neurophysio Podcast. I'm your host, Andres Prichel, and today's episode is all about sleep optimization. And believe me, that by tuning in today, you'll have a chance to enjoy better sleep tonight and for many, many nights to come. I had a chance to interview Dr. Jay Corsandi, a sleep expert that goes by Sleep Biohacker Online, and we dive deep on the physiology and psychology of sleep while making the science as accessible as possible so that you can implement some of the best and latest tips, tricks, and biohacks for sleep optimization and overall health optimization. So hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Hope you enjoy some lovely sleep tonight. Thank you, Dr. Jay, for joining us, and I'll see you on the other side. Hello, my dear listeners, ladies and gentlemen, have some exciting news, exciting update. The folks at Bioptimizers have truly outdone themselves with this new and improved formula for magnesium breakthrough. The best magnesium supplement on the market just got even better because it now contains cofactors like vitamin B6 and manganese to improve the bioavailability of magnesium. So for those of you who don't know what bioavailability means, it means that what you're introducing to your body is actually getting used up in a functional way to give you the effects that you're looking for. And with a lot of magnesium supplements, you don't have very good bioavailability. And on top of that, you only have one species of magnesium. Bioptimizers has seven different species of magnesium to support over 80% of your body's metabolic reactions, which are thousands. And now you really get to capitalize on all the incredible benefits of magnesium supplementation because we simply don't get enough through our diets nowadays. And if you want to learn more about that, by the way, tune into episode number 56 of my podcast with Wade Lightheart, one of the co-founders of Bioptimizers to learn more. So for folks who are looking to support their health and wellness and manage stress, uh, reduce anxiety, support a nice, calm, stable mood, get deeper, more restorative sleep, support tremendous energy throughout the day, I highly recommend that you take magnesium magnesium breakthrough that is on a daily basis. If I had to choose one supplement to take for the rest of my life every single day, it would be this one. I managed to get everything else that I need through my diet, all my macro and micronutrients, but because of the soil that we have today, we simply don't get the magnesium that we're supposed to be getting. And with our modern environments, it really helps to get enough magnesium. So I always like to go with the best, the purest, the safest, and the most bioavailable, which is why I choose magnesium breakthrough. So if you want to get your hands on some of this amazing, amazing stuff, go to magbreakthrough.com slash undress. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash undress, magbreakthrough.com slash undress, and use code undress, A-N-D-R-E-S, during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. Or simply scroll down to the show notes section of this episode on the preferred platform that you're currently tuning in from, and you'll see a link directly to checkout, which you can use right now before we start the show. Oh, and dare I mention that this is an incredible gift for your friends, family, and loved ones because it shows them that their health and wellness is in your best interest? Yes, it's true. In fact, I have my family set up on automatic deliveries on a monthly basis my mother's credit card because it's really the intention that counts. And you too can be intentional with your gift by giving the gift of magnesium breakthrough. So anyway, go ahead and use code undress at checkout magbreakthrough.com slash undress. Hope that you guys enjoy. And now let's go ahead and get started with the show.
Awesome. So we're here with Dr. Jay Corsandi. He is the sleep expert, sleep biohacker on Instagram, partner, doctor, and co-founder of Snort Experts and creator and host of Best Night Ever Sleep Podcast. Dr. Jay has spent the past 20 years exploring many fields, including cosmetic dentistry, corporate dentistry, executive leadership, sleep biohacking, and health optimization. His background includes a BS in physiological psychology slash psychobiology from UCLA, a doctor of dental surgery degree from Northwestern University, and advanced education in general dentistry from Lutheran Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. Recently, he's enjoyed a career shift into sleep medicine and health optimization. And today, we're going to learn why before he shares with us more information, tips, tricks, and biohacks to help us optimize your sleep so we can perform higher and enjoy a longer, more fulfilling lifespan. Dr. Jay, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the Know Your Physio podcast. Andres, thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. Thank you. So the first thing I want to ask you is, why did you shift gears? Why the career shift, dentistry to health optimization and sleep biohacking? How did that happen? You know, it's interesting. I've been putting my hands in people's mouths for over 20 years, and I've always enjoyed that, but I've always been fascinated with sleep. And then I made the connection that one of the most important parts of sleep is your airway, and it's only a few millimeters past your back molars. That's when it begins. So they said, well, this is a whole new area that I can dive into just because of my intimate knowledge of the head and neck structures. So it became an obsession of mine to go deep into what's called sleep disorder breathing or airway management is helping people who have snoring and sleep apnea, how to navigate the airflow challenges, which are very low hanging fruit for getting better sleep. So it was a natural fit and it worked out perfectly. You know, my mom is actually a dentist. She's been a dentist her whole life. And she tells me that she can tell right off the bat when she has someone sit on her chair, whether they're a nose breather or a mouth breather. So can you describe the differences with people tuning in, you know, just the kind of impact that nose versus mouth breathing can have and why we should be more conscious of the way we breathe? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And, and I'm glad she's able to do it. The mouth is the gateway to health. And not only can you see nose breathing, mouth breathing, you can see teeth grinding, you can sometimes smell metabolic acidosis, you know, blood sugar, dysregulation from kind of a, this acetone type breath, you can see gum disease, which is you know, can correlate to you know, heart disease because of the vasculature connection. So there's so many things that we can pick up from the mouth, which is amazing. But as far as the nose mouth connection, yeah, I can also see from a person walking down the street in the shopping mall, if they're a mouth breather or a nose breather, if they have sleep apnea, I can, I'm pretty good at about high 90% rate of predicting just from seeing so many cases. But general signs, I mean, it can go back and I can give you a quick little story here. A lot of this goes back to early childhood when we were three, four years old. A lot of people started their mouth breathing journey back then, which is not a good journey to start. But for whatever reason, they stopped using their nose. Ideally, the proper way to sleep is with your mouth closed, lips closed, teeth a little bit apart, tongue parked up in the roof of your mouth. And then that helps the development. But the problem is, is when you sleep with your mouth open, your tongue drops, your jaw drops, you stop using your nose, and then you start to develop issues. And these issues are that the muscles of the face will start to compress on the oral structures. And instead of developing what's called a U-shaped arch, you develop what's called a V-shaped arch. And then you get what's called a vaulted palate, which means if you put your tongue up to the roof of your mouth, it goes higher and higher. What that translates into is go to your teens is your teeth are now crowded. 
and your parents say, no big deal, we'll take you to the orthodontist. They're going to go ahead and fix this. Go to the orthodontist, orthodontist says, okay, no problem. What we're going to do is we're going to take out these teeth to create some space to then shift the teeth. The problem is, is they take out these teeth called the premolars or bicuspids. They're about halfway in the middle of the arch and they help to give you length and give you space. When you take those teeth out, they end up pushing the front teeth back. And what that does is that shrinks the size of the mouth. And what that does is then pushes the tongue further back down the throat. Now you fast forward into people in their 30s and 40s. For me, it's mostly men 40 and over and women about 50 and over. They start developing snoring and sleep apnea because of the airway space limitation. And a lot of it has to do with early childhood mouth breathing and orthodontics with extractions is what it's called. And these people are now suffering because they don't have the space to breathe at night. And then we can talk about all the different consequences of poor sleep, but there's a big nose mouth connection and people aren't aware of it. They're becoming more aware of it now these days with all of these different books and podcasts and shows and, and emphasis on nose breathing. But in the past, it wasn't even recognized. Wow. So it's a superficial solution is what you're describing. And you're not really addressing the root cause of the issue, right? And it's the way that people breathe. And then would you mind describing how this actually influences your ability to fall and stay asleep and enjoy deep sleep, the way that we breathe it, how it's linked to these sleep stages and, and essentially sleep latency, for example. I mean, if you could describe like parasympathetic or sympathetic and how it's related to mouth versus nasal breathing. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting question. Fundamentally breathing, and this is a, something that I've been studying a lot, and I know you have too as well with, with the different guests, but there's a brain and heart connection connected to the breath. And there's a very simple formula. When you inhale, it's sympathetic. When you exhale, it's parasympathetic. So if you're able to understand that and regulate that, that can help you fall asleep better at night. A lot of people will say, do breathing practices where you slow the exhale. So something like four, seven, eight, or even box breathing, where it's an even four seconds all the way around. These are, are help regulate your autonomic nervous system to help get you into more balanced state so you can fall asleep a bit easier. Plus, you know, you're focusing more on your breathing rather than thinking about all the crazy thoughts in your head. So generally you should fall asleep a little bit better. Yeah. Something I'll often share with people is, you know, whenever you want to find a more parasympathetic, more relaxed, calm state, or when you want to sleep better, you should do nasal breathing diaphragmatically and trying to really extend those exhales. And I found that for me, it works wonders and I've actually measured my biometric data and I see, you know, over the course of a few months, higher HRV, greater deep sleep percentage, so on and so forth. So I wanted to ask you a little more about the low hanging fruit for better sleep. You know, we're talking about breathing. Are there any more techniques that you would consider a low hanging fruit for better sleep and, you know, better energy, better mood and, and such? Yeah. I mean, just to kind of take it a step back, I look at sleep with three buckets and I call them MAP, M-A-P. There's a metabolic component, and this would be things like blood sugar levels, blood pressure, you know, the food you ate, things like that. There's a airway component, which is, we can get a little bit more into that one there. And then there's a P, which is the psychological component. So generally when people come see me for help, it could be one of those things. It could be all three of those things. But as far as low hanging fruit, in my opinion, the lowest hanging fruit is airway, just because this is generally an obstruction. It's just like if you had a clogged sink or toilet or something like that, there's a blockage. Once you open up that blockage, things flow, sleep improves. I could see dramatic changes overnight on people. Like people will say, I haven't slept like that in five years once we figure out the problem. So the lowest hanging fruit I think is airway. 
generally, this is a problem that tends to get worse as we get older and as we get heavier. The reason with the age is as we age, we have muscle atrophy, and you're well aware of that. The tongue and the structures of the airway get weaker over time. Gravity doesn't get weaker over time. Things continue to collapse or, or get weaker as we get older. The other is weight. If you get heavier, you're going to amass more fat tissue around the airway, which is going to compress the airway. So those are the two biggest components of airway. As far as low-hanging fruit, that's the best. As far as other things, yeah, we could talk about different tactics and strategies. But the other thing with airway, is, like I said, is as you get older, it's more of a problem. So for some people, it might not be a big deal in their, in their 20s or 30s. So it just kind of depends on what stage in life you are as well as your, your phenotype. Wow. And just a quick question. Is there any way to sort of combine the two, right? In terms of, can you restructure someone's mouth to breathe better while promoting, you know, nice alignment in their teeth? Is that yeah. possible? And do you do that kind of procedure? So there's a couple different ways to go about it. There's the surgicals and non-surgical techniques. I use non-surgical techniques. Some of the things that I do are things called mandibular advancement devices. They're special devices that people wear in their mouth at night and they move the jaw forward. And this is a temporary restructure throughout the night. And what that does is if the jaw and the tongue are connected, so if the jaw goes forward, the tongue goes forward. If the tongue goes forward, then the back part of the tongue also moves forward, opens up the airway, which is generally the problem with snoring and sleep apnea is the back of the tongue is collapsing towards the back of the airway. Other things that can be done I do a procedure called night laze, which is using infrared lasers to shine inside the back of the throat and causes tissue to reform and make new collagen. It's basically, oh, wow. air, yeah, it's airway. It's like, I call it like airway tightened Botox for your airway with a laser is basically what it is. And actually it was published on PubMed for wow. research on that. So these are some ways to do it. There are more exotic ways where you- Even more exotic them. than that? Oh, much more. Oh, yeah, much more. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about some of them. Yeah. Those are going to be more like working with an orthodontist and an oral surgeon where people who have had collapsed dentition or jaws or mouths are able to use special devices or braces or surgery and expand their arches, open up again to create that tongue space, which they have lost over time in nature. So- those are going to be more surgical, more lengthy, more expensive, more invasive, but they could be options for some people as well. So do you ever approach maybe a very experienced orthodontist or oral surgeon and tell them, hey, you know, you guys have the skill set to do these kinds of procedures. I understand how this can influence someone because no one, you know, it's not like every dentist has the background that you have. It's rare. So do you ever approach other people who have, perhaps they have a certain experience doing a, a certain kind of procedure or they specialize in some area of the mouth where you can approach them and say, this is what this patient's looking for. This is what they need. And it's going to help them optimize their sleep and their health overall. Can you do something like that? Do you offer something like that? My biggest passion now is I have young kids is reaching out to orthodontists and explaining what I deal with as a consequence of what happened to these patients 20, 30 years ago. And I work closely with a lot of these holistic and airway focused orthodontists. And the whole reason is, is I want to both learn from them as well as teach and advise them of how to set these kids up so they don't end up in a position like myself. I'm the prototypical patient. I was a mouth breather. I had teeth taken out with braces. I have what's called you know elongated kind of egg-shaped head, chronic nasal obstruction, deviated septum, teeth grinding. I did everything. And that's because I followed this path, which was destructive. My goal is for these kids, including my own, my own kids are actually getting special devices in their mouths to expand their palate, expand their arches, 
and enable a full facial growth development so they don't have these problems once they get older. So I say, you know, for some of us, it might be a little bit later, but if we can get this next generation, they're going to be so much better off. Wow. So you've completely, so you've shifted gears, but now your emphasis is on prevention, right? And your passion is genuinely for prevention through your personal journey. You've discovered that passion. Yeah. Because you see it on a daily basis, it starts to really hit home. And especially once you have kids, you don't want them to go down that same path. So I'm doing everything I can both personally and then, you know, publicly to help people avoid this problem because it's so destructive. And it, remember, it's it's obviously going to be affecting you and your health with poor sleep. But generally, if you have a partner or a spouse, if you're making noises or if you're having poor sleep or tossing and turning, you're also affecting someone else. And I call that secondhand snoring. It's, it's just like... If I lit a cigarette at night and blew in my wife's face every night, that wouldn't be cool, right? And these people who have poor sleep because of you know, certain lifestyle choices or you know, genetic or you know, structural anatomic issues, they're also affecting two people. So let's not do that. Wow. Well, this is an exemplary of a paradigm shift that I'm noticing in a lot of healthcare professionals as they sort of, you know, they dive into this field with an intention and then all of a sudden they see how destructive it can be because they ignore the preventative component, right? So is this something that you see personally as a doctor? Do you see this in other fields? And do you think that other people should focus on prevention, even though they've invested years of their life to offer some kind of procedure that provides a superficial solution? How do you think other people can make a shift the way that you've made it, but in other fields within medicine? Yeah. You know, medicine has always been, and even dentistry has always been segmented or compartmentalized, right? There's all these different fields. There's, you know, nephrology, cardiology, neurology, you know, all these specialties. And I think part of the problem is, is when you start dividing these into certain specialties, you lose sight of the big picture because at the end of the day, everything is connected. You know, our, our brain is not detached, our neurological system is not detached from the cardiovascular or from the hepatic or from anything. They're all connected and they all interact with each other. So making that connection you're able to see it from a little bit further back and say, well, instead of just focusing on taking this medication for this problem or doing this surgery for this thing, it's like, what can we do on a grander scale, on a lifestyle choice, on the fundamentals, obviously nutrition, movement, sleep. These are basic things that we can adjust to then make overall system changes rather than just doing certain components. Wow. And let's talk a little bit about the word biohacking. Do you think that most healthcare professionals have the wrong idea? Or do you think that they really appreciate biohacking for what it is? I think there's a little bit of a challenge with the word biohacking because it has a little bit of a negative, you know, people think of hacking, they think of computers and viruses and, and you know, breaking into things. So I would agree with a lot of people that, it, you know, it's more about health optimization, but, you know, it, it's a fun trendy word. The problem is, is a lot of people in the healthcare field still don't understand it completely. And because they don't maybe understand it, they might look at it negatively. And there's fine lines, right? You don't want to go and start doing your, your own you know, gallbladder removal. It's understanding. For me, biohacking, what it means is, is an awareness. It means you know first identifying and knowing that there's something wrong or that there's something that you want to improve. Then it involves some type of tracking, whether it's going to be lab work, metrics, trackers, and then it's modification. It's then doing what things need to be done to not only quantitatively make changes, but qualitatively and quantitatively make changes so you see improvements. And, and that's what it is at the end of the day. 
Wonderful, wonderful. And and to sort of shift gears, I want to ask you, what does it really mean to sleep better? Is it about getting more hours? Is it about how you feel when you wake up? What does it really mean to sleep better? It's a combination of things, right? And it's interesting because patients who see me, I'll ask them and say, when was the last time you woke up feeling refreshed? And I can tell you almost every single one will just sit there for a second, take a deep breath and go, oh man, I can't even remember. And that's a tough situation and tough position to be in, right? It's very personal for whoever is out there of what their definition of sleep is. But at the end of the day, for me, it's waking up refreshed. It's having energy throughout the day. It's being in a non-inflammatory state because of poor sleep. And it's more about quality than quantity. And it's also, you know, again, going back to what stage in life are you? Are you, you know, an infant? Are you a teenager? Are you in your 20s and 30s? Are you in your 50s and 60s? Because sleep needs change throughout the decade. So it's recognizing where you are in that chapter and then following those guidelines. Because if you're trying to get eight plus hours of sleep in your 50s and 60s, Generally, that's not going to happen unless you're either overweight or exhausted or something's wrong. Generally, I think the eight-hour goal is, for most people, unrealistic. I don't sleep eight hours. I sleep about seven hours and 24 minutes, which I've had over the last three, four years based off all of my tracking. But needs change. I guess the short answer is it depends. Right. And how can we track? What's the best way to track all of this You know, so that we know how much sleep we really need? What's the best way to, to really dive in on that and figure that out? So this is the beauty of progress in technology. Something like this 10, 15, 20 years ago would not have been available or accessible to people. The only thing you could have done back then was gone to a sleep lab and do what's called a polysomnogram where they hook up all these wires and you spend the night and they, you become basically a sleep lab experiment. Well, it seems like just the nature of that would disturb your sleep. <laughs> I mean. That's the problem. <laughs> People who have it done, they will tell me, I remember that night. I did it 10 years ago. It was the worst night of my life. Yeah. So there's a challenge because there's something also called the first night effect. And that's whenever you spend the night outside of your own normal sleeping environment on those, usually those first nights, you have a elevated sympathetic response because you're in an unfamiliar environment. So put that into play along with all of the wires and the techs and the cameras and the mirrors and the bed and everything. It's not the most natural situation. So fast forward to today, we have tons of technologies, tons of consumer wearables and these things called trackers, which are very accessible. And they're not quote unquote medical sleep studies, but they give you an idea of what's going on on a nightly basis. And then that's when you can start to get a better understanding of how you sleep and the things that you do that affect your sleep. Yeah. And what happens physiologically and how can we actually measure that like for example you know i know that you're a fan of of biostrap and as am i and i'm always mentioning biostrap on the on the podcast because they really are awesome and it helped me you know quantify my sleep and do a number of different tests to see how different habits and such influences my sleep scores but you know what kind of metrics should we track in general whether we have a biostrap or not what are the most reliable biometrics that we can track for better sleep most of these trackers are going to have generally the same data. They're going to have when you fell asleep, when you woke up, the number of disturbances. They're going to estimate your sleep staging, REM sleep, deep sleep, light sleep, things like that, which are, like I said, estimates because the only way to really get those is with what's called an EEG, which is connected to your head and measuring brain waves as you go through different sleep stages. But they still give you information. So those are the, some of the metrics. You'll see heart rate variability on a lot of these. You can see body temperature. 
some will measure position or disturbances. The fundamental thing is, you know, all of this data is good. It's just a matter of tracking and watching trends. That's what I'm more concerned with. You know, you want to establish a baseline and then you want to see how things change over time. So, so we were, you were discussing earlier the three buckets, right? For better sleep. And you mentioned briefly blood sugar and the way we eat, you know, and one of the most dramatic changes, relatively speaking, that I've made in my life, my lifestyle as of the past few months is eating an earlier dinner. So, you know, Previously, I was having dinner around 8 p.m., maybe 8.30, and going to bed around 10, 10.30. Now I'm going to bed around the same time, but I'm having dinner like 6.37, and oh my God, way better sleep, way, way better sleep. So can you, would you mind describing the physiology of you know, food, dinner, blood sugar, and how it influences our sleep? Yeah. And it's an interesting thing. I actually just put a post up yesterday about how I got some great sleep, and one of them was eating dinner around 6, 6.30. And it's a big deal. And I call this kind of circadian eating and it changes you know, with light exposure. So in the summertime, the sun goes down a little bit later, you could probably eat a little bit later. And in the wintertime, probably eat a little bit earlier. That's how I kind of do a general rule of thumb. But the whole theory with eating and sleep is a couple of things, right? When we eat, we're, we're activating metabolic pathways, we're activating the GI system, and the body wants to dedicate all its resources to restorative sleep, rejuvenating sleep. So if you're giving it a task to do while it's trying to do other tasks, it's just like computers when you have a bunch of windows open, it gets bogged down, right? So you're, it's going to sacrifice at some point. So that's one problem. The other is there's a relationship between insulin and melatonin, and they're actually antagonistic. And what happens is if you're eating at night, you're obviously increasing blood sugar levels, insulin is released, that's going to go and stop melatonin from being released, which will then block you or delay your sleep onset. So sleep efficiency goes down as well too. So the sooner you can stop eating, let blood sugar stabilize, generally the better you're going to sleep. So why do some people say, Hey, you know, when I have a nice big dinner, I get tired. Shouldn't I sleep better if I'm tired after a big meal? You know, that's the same kind of argument as, you know, if I have a few glasses of wine or if I have a, a couple hits of THC, it's because you're kind of sedating yourself with that burden, right? Whether it's alcohol, the marijuana or the food, it's an artificial drowsiness. Yeah, it might feel good. And, and obviously people eat dinner late and they have that kind of dopamine or serotonin hit of the, of the meal. But on the back end, you're going to suffer, whether you might wake up at night, go to the bathroom because you had a bunch of liquid, maybe have some reflux, or just, you know, bounce through different stages of sleep on, on a more lighter level and not get that deep sleep. Nice. And, you know, one thing is, what about the relationship between cortisol and melatonin? Would you mind describing, describing that? I'm going to tie this all up in just a second, but I wanted to ask you about that cortisol and melatonin. Yeah, a lot of people tend to put cortisol in this bad bucket of, you know, it's the stress hormone, you don't want it, it's not good for you. But, you know, cortisol has a purpose and it's necessary. It's the wake up hormone. It's what's released in the morning. It's also what's released exposure to blue light. That's why we always say, you know, get up in the morning, get out and get some sun on your face, on your eyes, it helps boost mental clarity and, and energy. Melatonin is, is kind of the opposite. So these are also antagonistic, right? One is, is high during the day, which is consequently then low throughout the night. And the other one is the exact, and they almost like follow opposite paths if you look at them. So cortisol, obviously you don't want too much of it at certain times, you know, especially at night. As far as melatonin goes, you know, this is the sleep hormone. It has other functions as well. It's, it's a very potent 
antioxidant as well, which a lot of people don't understand. But melatonin obviously is going to help fall asleep, to stay asleep. People supplement with melatonin. I generally don't unless I'm traveling and I use it for kind of jet lag hacking, circadian rhythm. But one of the things that people don't also know about melatonin is that it has a half-life of 45 minutes. So when people take these 10 milligram of melatonin, well, you just hit yourself with a high dose, but it's going to be gone in 90 minutes. Most of it's going to be gone. So do you then depend on your endogenous production once? So it helps initiate sleep, but to keep you asleep, it's your endogenous production. Is that what you're trying to describe? I always recommend doing whatever you can throughout the day to promote endogenous processes to happen. Because a lot of people come and say to me, well, what should I take at night or what should I do? And I say, your best night starts the morning you wake up. And it's what you do throughout the day and this chain of events and sequences that then dictate how you're going to sleep that night. So everything that you just described, and again, to tie this all up, it sounds, I feel like to some people, it may sound like you have to be very systematic with your lifestyle to get the best sleep. But can we discuss how this is consistent with our evolution perhaps, and how maybe modern life takes us away from that consistency? Because it does seem systematic, right? To have to eat dinner earlier, to have to wake up and think about sleep and think about how your habits and choices may influence the way you sleep. But how can we, how can we describe that from an evolutionarily consistent perspective? Maybe that will help people, give people the incentive to, to really pursue this more of a systematic approach. Yeah, I can see that. And obviously I'm guilty of probably doing too much throughout every day to kind of promote the good sleep. But that's obviously because I'm obsessed with, with sleep performance. At the end of the day, you don't want to get bogged down. You don't want to you know, stress over what I'm doing, what I'm eating, but you also want to be mindful of there are certain guidelines and, and limitations. I call it, you know, how people like to say keto and paleo and all these different things. I would say it's kind of like paleo sleep, right? We wake up with two things in the morning. We wake up with light and we wake up with heat. So think about, you know, caveman, sun's hitting his eyes and the cave is warming up. That's how we wake up. And we go to sleep at night with darkness and cool. So those are the most fundamental things. Obviously, keeping a consistent sleep schedule is also very easy to do and, and very, you know, I would start with very small, easy things, you know, and then add more of these things as you fine tune your processes. Uh, you don't have to get obsessed like some people like I do, but, you know, start small. And, and that's the thing, just do things that you can do that's easy to do. So you don't get discouraged. And you'll start to see some improvements. Yeah, you know, for me, I mean, I obviously have the bias of this is what I do, right? I'm, I'm a physiologist and such and, and biohacker. And I'm constantly thinking about and trying to be mindful of my habits and how they can influence my sleep. But what I've noticed is that the investment that I've made the time and energy and attention to these kinds of habits, I mean, it improves my quality of life when I'm not sleeping. It helps me make more of everything I do when I'm not asleep, genuinely. And to discuss, maybe to reference the psychology of some of these habits, and there's you know the pyramid of procedural knowledge, I believe it's is what it's called. And you know you begin with unconscious incompetence, then conscious incompetence. So you know what you don't know now, and then conscious competence. So I know what I know, and then there's unconscious competence. So you apply without knowing. And I think that for a lot of people, if they start small and they start to feel better, they start to sleep better, maybe they see a reflection in their biometrics. All of a sudden, now these habits become true, genuine lifestyle changes. And voila, now you have a lifestyle where automatically you're sleeping better, making more of your sleep, and it doesn't even feel like you have to be obsessed. It just feels natural. So 
exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> you said it right. <laughs> awesome. So I want to ask you about efficient sleep. So, you know, there's always the recommendation of, hey, you should get more hours of sleep, you know, get your seven, eight hours and you'll be fine. But can you actually sleep more efficiently? And please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of this is if you increase your deep sleep percentage, and just to quickly share from my personal experience, ever since I started using my wearable devices, specifically BioStrap to track my sleep, I noticed that about a year ago, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, actually, my deep sleep percentage average was about 25 to 28%. Today, it's 40 to 45%. So does that mean that I'm sleeping more efficiently? Because nowadays when I get my six hours, I still can feel super refreshed, whereas before it would really be detrimental. You know, people reach out to me all the time and they say, I look at my tracker and I need to get more deep sleep or how do I get more REM sleep or which one's better or what do I need more of? And at the end of the day, the most simple answer is you should be looking at the whole picture, right? And if you're looking to optimize sleep, the goal isn't to just continue to funnel it down into the, the most minimal amount, unless, you know, unless that's your style and you're looking for maximum performance, maximum optimization. Sleep requirements change, like we said, throughout the decades. So it could be different for different people. Some people are just born needing more sleep. Some people who are unhealthy might need more sleep. Some people who are optimized might need less sleep. It also comes down to circadian rhythms. And you can talk about things like chronotypes, where some people should be going to sleep at a certain time and waking up a certain time, and they don't. They're going against it. Some people are shift workers, where they're working you know, in hospitals overnight or you know, airports or whatever, and they're completely reversed. So everybody has unique situations. Increasing certain numbers, I think it is great for sharing on social media, you know, but at the end of the day, if your sleep is good and your numbers are good, you know, trying to, to parse out certain numbers or certain things. And again, remember, these are estimations. So if you're trying to weigh heavily in on them, it might not be the best use of time and resource. Right. It can be precise, but not accurate. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if you're feeling good and functioning well, go with that too. I mean, don't get too obsessed with the data either, because that's a problem in and of itself. I can tell you that there's days when I wake up and my tracker said, I slept fantastic and I don't feel that great. And there's other days where it says, well, you had a really bad night of sleep. And I said, no, I, I feel fantastic. Let's go. So you got to take it with a grain of salt. So would you always make the argument for sleeping in alignment with your genetics, right? Your is the word chronobiology, is that the right terminology? Yeah. So would you always, you know, prefer that over just trying to adapt to the schedule that works with you or that works best for your work and, and life? Should you try to adapt to what you're used to and what's most convenient? Or should you make an effort to sleep in accordance with your chronobiology and then see how you can manage the rest? I think it's a combination of both. I think also during this whole pandemic and lockdown, a lot of people revisited how they sleep because they weren't getting up to take the kids to school or drive to work. So you could maybe leave that alarm clock off, which could then tell you when your natural wake up time was. So people can start to see how they should have normally slept. Now, obviously, you know, you can still control when you fall asleep, but maybe when you wake up is a different time. So it is a combination of you know work and lifestyle demands as well as your, your chronobiology and finding a good happy balance or happy medium. Obviously, if you're a shift worker, that's going to be a whole different situation. But generally, for most people, 
try to get in line with what feels the best and what works the best. And that's the you know, fundamental of like any of these biohacking things. But could what feels the best be a result of a poor lifestyle or just convenience or giving into social pressures of going out late at night and then waking up late? Or how do you know that when you naturally wake up is the right time in accordance with your chronobiology? Well, again, like you said, you know, there's this thing called social jet lag where, you know, back in the normal days when things were open and accessible, people would have generally consistent sleep schedules Monday through Friday comes the weekend. They're going out late at night. They're going drinking they're going to, you know, and they're going to sleep a lot later. And then what happens is Monday morning comes around and they're jet lagged because of, you know, their shift in their sleep patterns. So there are lifestyle choices that are going to reduce the optimal sleep scenario. So it just, again, it goes back to kind of, it's a quantitative and qualitative, right? So finding what works best for you, that's kind of the fun of this whole thing. And that, that's what I get excited about. Because every time I go to sleep at night, I'm like, man, I wonder how today is going to translate through tonight. And it's always changing. It's a moving target, which for me, I mean, for some people, maybe it's frustrating. For me, it's fun. It's a challenge. It's like, well, what can I do today? Or what's going to happen tonight? Let's see how tomorrow goes. I know I did X, Y, and Z. So it should translate into this. That when you have that information, then you can start to say, okay, I'm eating late at night. I know it's, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to take a hit. Or I, I stopped eating at 5 p.m. Or I had alcohol. Or you know, my nose is stuffy and I can't breathe. I have allergies. So all these things, you have that arsenal of information, then you can almost predict what's going to happen. And that's the fun part for me. Yeah. I mean, I have a, a lot of fun doing that on a daily basis. I love the way that you said that a moving target, it's exactly what it is. And I have so much fun implementing these new habits, techniques, and seeing how my body responds. That's what Know Your Physio is all about. Now, I want to do something kind of fun with you. I have a sleep article that I wrote on my website. It's like six ways to improve your sleep routine, right? And I dive into some of the research, some of the physiology, and I'd like to do some myth busting with you. <laughs> I'd love to get your take on some of this. Let's do it. The first thing I describe here is decreasing your core body temperature. And there's a study by Harding et al. from 2019 published in Frontiers in Neuroscience. The title of the study is The Temperature Dependence of Sleep. And it describes how sleep is initiated by this drop in our core body temperature. And this is the first thing that I mentioned because then I discussed different biohacks for seeing, for experiencing or pronouncing that drop in your core body temperature for better sleep. So what's your take on the body temperature response and how can we biohack? Before I get to some of mine, I want to hear about some of yours and then we can do some myth busting. But what's your take and what are some of the things that we can do? Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, there's two major regulators of sleep. One is light exposure, which more and more people now understand, you know, blue light exposure at night is not good. Blue blocking glasses, things like that. The other is temperature. And then the bigger question too is, you know, a lot of people will say to me, well, you know, this biohacking stuff and all the gadgets you have, they're expensive and thousands of dollars. And this is a rich man's game and things like that. And there are obviously lots of things out there that you can play with and try. As far as falling asleep and staying asleep, temperature is huge. It's one of the things that I recommend people and patients when they're having trouble sleeping at night, especially as they get older. Again, <laughs> a lot of this has to do with aging. And that's why people say to me, you know, why do you do it? You go, well, I'm, you know, I'm moving up a little bit in age and, and I'm trying to do whatever I can to stay not afflicted with all these different problems. But as far as temperature goes, the easy route, and there's a super easy route. One would be put your sheets, maybe or a pillow in the freezer before bed, and then you have cold sheets getting into your bed. 
Another wow. one could be obviously cold showers. There's a big push for cold exposure these days with Wim Hof. You could do a cold shower before bed. So, you know, I'm just going through cheap, easy hacks, so to speak, right? You know, you could, you could take a hot bath. Uh, a lot of times taking a hot bath, once you're out of the bath, the body is trying to dump that excess heat and will actually will overcompensate and, and drop below too as well. So that to me is fascinating, right? Because it's two completely different things, a mm -hmm. cold shower or a hot bath. So mm -hmm. this is where I, I mean, I've just gone back and forth with so many people because I try to describe how, you know, in my opinion, for a long time, it was taking a hot shower or taking a hot bath, because as you said, it's you super compensate. Then you see a a sudden drop in your core body temperature and that can initiate sleep. But then there's other people that say, all right, but why don't you just take a cold shower to get yourself cold? And then that's how you get to the colder body temperature. But in my opinion, if you do some serious cold exposure before bed, you'll see an increase in your cortisol levels, which will keep you up. So what's the right answer there? The right answer is it depends and everybody's different. <laughs> Yeah. I, and I that's the thing. That. A, lot, a lot of people will try to just put things into certain truths and just say, this is the way it needs to be done. But the, right. at the end of the day, this is biohacking or this is optimization is everybody responds differently, right? What if you have a different cold response or you have a certain aversion or you have a preference or if one, maybe you dislike the cold shower more, but it works better for getting you into sleep. Well, then you might want to be doing it more. You know, it comes down to just what works best for you? So like I said, that was my opinion for a very long time that, you know, it was for a long time, I thought that the heat was better. And what I would do is I'd take a hot shower and I would just set up my room to be anywhere between 62 and 68 degrees Fahrenheit. So I jump out of the shower, hot shower, and all of a sudden now I'm really, really cold, right? My bed's cold because I have my AC unit right above my bed. So that's what I thought. Now what I'm doing is I've done some testing with colder showers and I'm in, I'm in South Florida, so it doesn't really get very cold. You know, it's, it'll be like room temperature, but still, you know, relatively it's cold for us. And you know what? I actually do sleep better with a cold shower. And I think that it's a combination of feeling almost like fresher when I'm in bed and like cleaner. But another thing is that I'm not sweating when I'm in bed. If I take a hot shower or I take a hot bath, sure, maybe I'm more vasodilated, right? I'm more relaxed and such. And I see a more significant absolute drop in body temperature but I'm sweaty and I feel uncomfortable, you know? So the cold has worked better for me, but I love that answer. It depends on the individual, where they're at and, you know, the time of year too. It's summer here. That's right. The cold yeah. showers have been so nice in the summer. Yeah. And there's more expensive hacks. I mean, if you want to just go down the list, obviously showers and, and you know, refrigerators are easy. Getting into bed cooling systems, there's things like chili pads and oolers and bed jets, which I have all of the above which then regulate you know, temperature of the bed. There's now mattresses that have that built in as well too. So you can get very exotic and it could get expensive, but you know, we spend a third of our lives pretty much asleep. So it's worth an investment. That to me is worth the money. All you have to say is you spend a third of your life in bed. You need to optimize the way you sleep. This study, just to give a couple more, to share a little more information from this study, they describe that an optimal room temperature should be around 19 to 21 degrees Celsius. I believe that's 65 to 68 Fahrenheit. Yeah. And then they also attempt to establish skin microclimates between 31 and 35 degrees Celsius. So they describe how, you know, not just laying in bed with your room set to that temperature, but also creating a warmer microclimate with some kind of, you know, sheet or, you know, something to really cover your body. So I wanted to ask you what your take is on those like weighted blankets, you know, would that create too much heat? Do they actually work? 
How can they influence our sleep? The weighted blankets, you know, I've used them a couple of times. They're based off of the theory of, comes from the world of autism and child spectrum management. It's kind of similar to going back to the dentist analogy. When you went to the dentist and they're going to take x-rays on you, they put this thing called a leaded vest. And a lot of people will find as soon as that's on their body, they calm down. It's kind of a, a side effect of the whole thing because people are usually very nervous in the dental office. So having that weight on the body is a parasympathetic activator in theory, and it's supposed to feel like someone's kind of giving you a hug or an embrace, and that's supposed to be very calming and supposed to help with sleep. Personally, I haven't had great success with weighted blankets. I think mine was probably a little bit on the heavier side, which I overdid as usual. Some people like them, some people don't. Again, it goes back to experimentation. They're very popular. I could tell you one other thing as far as temperature goes, and now that you mentioned skin, is when we go to sleep at night, the body will not go to sleep unless the temperature of your hands and your feet or your extremities are the same temperature as your core. And for me, I'm personally have cold feet a lot and that becomes an issue. So, you know, wearing socks at night sometimes has helped me fall asleep faster just because my feet aren't cold. So that's another little hack there as far as temperature goes. Yeah, that's actually something that I discuss in this, this sleep article is actually one of the next couple of points that I was going to get to how wearing socks can improve your sleep and how it can help you sleep. And I actually published this once on Instagram. I started to talk about it on Instagram and a couple of people reached out and they said, what, how can you sleep with socks on? You know, that's terrible. <laughs> how dare you sleep with socks on? And from what I understand, it's because our hands and feet are just so lean, right? There's a very, very small amount of fat tissue there. And so, and we have a lot of blood that circulates in those areas. And so all of a sudden, they become these fountains of heat and cold. And that's one of the reasons why they can help us sleep. Because if you put socks on, and please correct me if I'm wrong, feel free to jump in whenever. If we put socks on, we help regulate that heat flow. And we can also help push some of that colder blood towards our core to initiate sleep. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. And I generally don't do it. But if I have really cold feet, then yeah, that night I'm, I'm wearing some socks. Sweet. Yeah. I'm, I'm wearing socks pretty much every night. Now we were discussing the parasympathetic effect of a weighted blanket. And I, I wanted to mention something kind of funny is for the past few years, we have this little dog at home. She's 10 years old now, but for the longest time, and really for her whole life, she's been very much afraid of lightning. Right. And my mom was trying to figure out all different kinds of ways to help her relax. Whenever it started raining, she was, you know, classically conditioned. Now rain, lightning, she would hide. And she, at one point she bought her this like weighted jacket that sort of felt like she was getting hugged. <laughs> and it did help to some degree. And it made me think about, you know, man, a hug just goes such a long way. And now I'm sort of making that connection between hugging, lightning and weighted blankets, which is really nice. <laughs> so right. I wanted to ask you, <laughs> I wanted to ask you now about blue light exposure. That's another one of the tips here for better sleep on this article. So I discuss the blue light blocking glasses, and I want you to help us make the distinction between true blue light blocking glasses and computer glasses and different settings on our phone, right? There's like the blue light setting on the iPhone or I forget what it's called, but you can set that up, you know, also on your laptop. So do these actually help us sleep better? Do they really work? What kind of glasses do we need? You know, is it computer glasses? Do they need to have this orange tint? Can you tell us a little more about the blue light blocking? Yeah. So there's obviously a lot more awareness these days with the exposure to blue light, but I think there's two challenges. 
with blue light one is obviously the light hitting the eyes and a lot of people think well blue you know it's not like police light blue it's literally white light it's, it's the light coming off the devices the ipads the laptops the, the phones i guess there could be three problems let's say one is the light itself the other is the content right and a lot of people at night are going to be playing on their phone surfing social media whatever the content that they're seeing could be very triggering obviously it's made to continue to have you click on certain things and and that's not what you want to be activated at that time at night dopamine rushes and things like that and then the third could be emf exposure too as well where if you're playing with a lot of these devices you're just continuously getting exposed which could be harming your biology so as far as blue light blocking glasses go yeah there's a couple different ranges and spectrums the light really light tint or clear ones i'm not a fan of i don't you know i think you really need filtering of certain wavelength and spectrums there's generally three shades out there there's a yellow tint which i use during the day to function on a computer or if i'm indoors there's more of an orange tint which is going to simulate like a sunset and that would be more in the evening time and then there's a red one which is basically lights out go to sleep i don't use the red ones too much again that might be more for jet lag hacking if i'm on a flight or if i'm at landing at a hotel but when you wear those red ones, you really can't see almost anything. And I've hit my feet on certain things around the house. So I generally avoid those if I'm in bed. And then there's modes on the phone. Yeah, I've got this super red mode, which you can activate on the iPhone. I made a YouTube video. And then all the computers I have set to follow, you know, circadian lighting. It helps. Ideally, I just would avoid them altogether at certain times. Yeah, I have a few different things set up. I mean, I, I wear my raw optics every night. I put them on an hour and a half or so before bed. That has, oh my God, the nights that I don't wear my raw optics for whatever reason, my sleep is just not the same. It's not as deep. I find that I wake up more. And then on my iPhone, I do have a setting where as soon as the sun goes down, so now, you know, this time of year, it's around 8 p.m., it starts to, you know, the blue light starts to, you see, you see a decrease in the blue light, so it turns more of like this orange tinted color. And then I also have a software called Flux, F.Lux on my laptop. And that's also, you know, automatic and it makes it, it's a transition as the sun starts to go down, it transitions into this, you know, anti blue light effect. So, yeah, I mean, I got a quick hack for you. I'm not a big fan of wearing glasses just in general. I don't like things on my face. So what I've done at night in my house is I have separate light switches with red bulbs. So I have a day switch and then I have a night switch, especially in the bathroom. And then if, if I need to get up at night or if it's nighttime, basically my house turns into like a, like a submarine or, or like a red light district. Uh, <laughs> it's actually know. exactly what I do as well. Believe it or not, I have a red light next to my bed and that's what I use to, yeah. if I'm just hanging out or if I'm, if I'm reading a book and at night, I think this is interesting. You mentioned content. So at night, I try to stay away from things that are going to make me think a lot and ponder. And I try to stick to fiction when I'm reading. I won't look at emails. I won't look at text messages. I won't look at social media because all of those are just, they're triggers and we don't see it and we don't expect it. And there's so much unknown, right? If you read fiction, you know, it's just all made up. You know that it's just going to put your mind in a different place and help you sleep. I think that's one of the best hacks. And it's actually something that I learned through Tim Ferriss in his book, The 4-Hour Workweek mm -hmm. is read fiction. It's one of the best ways to fall asleep. Yeah. The, the temptation and the draw to go on social, you know, I'm guilty of it too as well. And I think we all are, but yeah, I mean, ideally put the phones down, go sit outside by a fireplace, watch the stars and then meditate or something. And man, you, you don't need any fancy hacks. That's, that's it right there. Yeah.
And I actually, I do want to get to what to do the next morning, morning routines. But before we get there, there's a couple more things I want to dissect with you. One of them is number four out of six of the tips that I share here on this article, waking up during a light stage of your sleep cycle. So this is something that I've done that has worked well for me the past couple of years. And it's worked well for a lot of people that I've shared this tip with. And it's timing out your sleep so that you wake up in what's supposed to be a lighter stage. So the way it works is, you know, on average, our sleep cycles last about 90 minutes. So what I do is I'll sleep in multiples of 90 minutes, but I'll add in my expected time to fall asleep. So like if I'm very much awake one night, when I'm, once I'm in bed, I'll set the timer to, you know, a multiple of five times 90. So seven and a half hours, five sleep stages is what we understand is optimal, especially around my age. And from then on, I'll add in, you know, anywhere between five to 30 minutes. Most of the time it's 10 to 15. And then for example, some nights where I can't get seven and a half, I'll go all the way down to six and then I'll add in the five, 10, 15, 30 minutes, but I'll never ever set my timer to wake up in between those stages. So I I don't set it up for seven hours, for example. So what do you think about that tip? Do you think that it's something that I'm just making up? Is it all a placebo effect or is it, can it really work? No, I like that tip. I think it's a little bit geeky and a little bit out there. <laughs> there's an easier solution. There are actually apps and there's trackers that will do all of that for you. And yeah. they'll actually monitor you in those different stages of sleep and then wake you up and they'll do all the calculations. So yeah, well, I've used the apps before and I just noticed that, you know, as far as the the 90 minute cycles, it was pretty consistent for, for me. And so I started doing it myself just to kind of play around with and see on my own. But I have used apps like, I think there's one called literally Sleep Cycle. Sleep Cycle, yeah. That's the one app that I've used. And, and yeah, and then the next thing is I do want to dive into EMF because number five out of six here is turning off Bluetooth and Wi-Fi devices. And I actually have my Wi-Fi router modem set up like right near my bed. That way I, it's easy for me to turn it on and off you know, when I go to sleep and when I wake up in the morning. So if you could tell us a little more about EMF, I know there's a lot of people tuning in who have no idea what EMF is, no idea the kind of impact that it can have. So how can we mitigate EMF and what kind of role can it play in better sleep? You know, EMF is becoming a little bit more of a topic these days, you know, it stands for electromagnetic frequencies. The reality is, is where there's EMFs throughout the planet that are naturally made, which are, you know, whether from, you know, lightning and thunder or waves crashing or, you know, the magnetic properties of the earth, these all generate fields. What is an issue is what's called non-native EMFs, so things that are not natural. These are going to be higher frequency things, right? Earth's frequency is going to be what's called the Schumann resonance, 7.83 hertz. So I mean, we're talking about things in gigahertz and the millions of, of hertz. And some people say that this is detrimental to the human biology. The tricky part is, is a lot of people don't feel it. I mean, I know as a kid, I would go to the microwave and throw in some food in there and just put my face up to the microwave and watch it cook, right? I didn't know. This is back in the 80s. So now these days, would I use a microwave? Probably not. You know? And again, same thing with the Wi-Fi router. It's not something that you could see, hear, taste. Maybe you can feel. Some people are very what's called electrosensitive. I'm not, but that doesn't mean I'm still not going to expose myself. So like you said, what I do is I have my Wi-Fi router. I have an easy solution. I, I bought a timer on Amazon. It was like eight bucks and it basically goes off at 9 p.m. and it turns back on in the morning. So do I need Wi-Fi at two in the morning? Probably not. I'm asleep. So why have it running? 
There is an issue now with, you know, obviously neighbors, or if you live in an apartment building or in an urban area, you're going to be getting other people's. So then you have to think about, is there ways to mitigate that? There are certain devices and companies out there that will cater to that. But just generally in your own vicinity, yeah, I would turn off the Wi-Fi at night. I have my Bluetooth devices off. Even the trackers go into airplane mode. My phone's on airplane mode. And I generally sleep better when those are off. Yeah. So are you familiar with Blue Shield? Yeah. Yeah. I just got a Blue Shield. Would you mind describing what it does and how someone can use it to their benefit? So now we're getting a little bit out there in the woo-woo sector. Yeah, this is here. this is where we put our tinfoil hats on. Yeah. So there's a couple different companies out there that are basically claim the scalar energy phenomenon. And I don't have the blue shield. I have one called a somovedic, which yeah, same kind of idea. Too. Yeah. Do they work? You know, some people are very adamant and they say it's, it's transformative and life-changing. Other people say this is not for me. The way they're working is basically they're not blocking EMF. The only way to block EMF is something called a Faraday cage. It's literally either silver lining or metal mesh or you know, concrete blocks. That's the only way to really block EMF or even you know special EMF paint. But these are basically emitting energies that are basically... They help harmonize our frequency. Harmonize, the, yeah. The frequency yes. of EMF. That's the marketing yeah, words. Yeah, that's, 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 that's what it is, right? Yeah, they're basically <laughs> telling the body, they're, they're almost fooling the body into latching onto their frequency and energy versus being distracted with the EMF effects. Okay, all right. And I mean, I got mine recently. They said that there's some kind of like detox effect when you get yours and such. And and yeah, I mean, one thing I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of is lack of evidence does not mean evidence is lacking. Right. So maybe the evidence isn't there now, but who knows, 10 years from now, we may find out that it actually does influence our physiology. So why not play around with it and take a preventative approach? Who knows? I don't think it affects us negatively. You know, that's the ultimate question. At this point, I don't know either. I hope not. What about grounding mats? Can we use those for sleep? I know a lot of people will do like a combo of, you know, their chili pad and a grounding mat. Have you found that that helps? Have you used them yourself? Yeah, I have it in my bed. I've used it. You know, grounding is basically the, this phenomenon of releasing electric charge that is accumulated throughout the day from our daily activity and exposure. It's beneficial, again, going back to jet lag hacking. If you get off a plane, if you can get on some grass or to a body of water and connect with that, it helps just release that charge. Because the earth has a negative charge and we've evolved to, you know, receive this negative charge. Whereas nowadays with modern life and technology, we're more positively charged and we don't ground like we used to. So another woo-woo kind of thing in some circles, but... <laughs> I mean, there's a movie on, I think it's on Netflix, where this yeah, guy... Yeah, Irving. Yeah, and he went throughout the whole city, I think it was in Alaska or something, and gave everybody earthing mats, and, and the, the whole city miraculously got healthier, which yeah, I think was a little bit fancy editing, but you know, I, there are benefits. Yeah, sure. I mean, one thing I do every morning is I try to do some grounding. I'll put my earth runner sandals on, they have a copper anode, you know, so I'll do that. And I feel better. I mean, I don't know if the, the, the research is 100%. I don't know if we know everything we need to know about grounding or what, but I wear them. I feel good. And I love my earth runners. So I want to ask you a couple more things about sleep supplements. So we discussed melatonin. What's your take on L-theanine for sleep? I'm a fan of L-theanine. It's what's found in green tea. It kind of gives it that Zen feeling. Personally. I don't do well with too many things at night. You know, a lot of people want to have this ultimate stack of supplements for sleep. What do I take? 
I found the more things I take at night, the worse my sleep generally gets. I'm all about kind of endogenous yeah. staging, yep. but L-theanine is great. There's different forms of it. Obviously there's pills, there's sublingual liquids for oral absorption. There's, you know, GABA, there's a skull flower or skull cap flower. There's lemon balm. I mean, there's so many different supplements out there that some people find helpful for me. Not so much. Yeah, me neither. I'm definitely a fan of, like you said, it's setting the endogenous stage. Is that what you what you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about the endogenous production. I know a lot of people will take these kinds of supplements, but I mean, when you look at their stress levels, the way they breathe, right? It just you go, man, just work on that, and you don't yeah. need any. You don't need to waste your money. And on it's free, exactly. It's, yeah, it's free. Like this, and I've kind of cut back on supplements. I was taking probably 20 to 30 a day now. <laughs> and I'm and I'm really cutting down to like less than 10. I just want to, you know, I think I got caught up in the whole supplement game. Yeah. And I think it's easy to, I mean, it's brilliant marketing. They, they sell you on the, oh, it's one third of your life. You might as well supplement it and, and try and make the most of it. But the endogenous stage, and then when you see what goes into the endogenous stage, so much more about your life and your lifestyle improves, not just the way you sleep, performance mm-hmm. and a number of different realms. Now I have an, another question for you. How does sex influence sleep? Should we be having sex before we go to bed? Or should we save it for the morning? That's an interesting one too. So the sex itself, again, it's personal. It could be activating for some people. It could be relaxing for others. There's a phenomenon called le petit mort, which is known for, especially for guys after ejaculation, they, they just want to kind of crash and go to sleep. So that some people leverage that benefit. Some people do better in the morning. This is a fun one because you get to experiment, right? Try both, see which one works better. For me personally, I'm more of a morning guy. I've learned over the years, maybe even when I was younger, it may have been more of a night guy, but morning tends to kind of work better with me. Some people yeah. night and it just totally depends, right? Yeah. And you know, there's an argument someone was describing at one point, I was having a conversation about when is the best time to have sex if you want to get good sleep. And this gentleman was describing how, you know, the oxytocin production as a result of, you know, having sex and serotonin that it can have a vasodilatory effect. And even though you got your heart rate up because now you're more relaxed, you're vasodilated, that can help you go to sleep. My argument was sure, but I mean, you still can have some kind of elevated heart rate, mm-hmm. you know, potentially some kind of course on who knows, maybe this, maybe this sex doesn't go so well as you plan. Maybe you're taking a risk there. Yeah. Very, very interesting. I'm, I'm all for the testing. Now, what about naps? Tell us about naps. Personally, I don't nap. I had Simland on the podcast that I think you had a chance to listen to, and he's a huge fan of napping. You know, so so what's your take on naps? It's another personal thing. It depends on stage in life. It depends on your biology, and it depends on the purpose of the nap. Are you taking a nap because you're exhausted, or are you taking a nap so you can continue to function more at the latter half of the day. Lately, I've been probably doing a couple more naps just because of just workload and, you know, just to give myself a little bit of time to rejuvenate and continue pushing. The tricky part with nap is length. You generally want to keep it about 20 minutes or so, because if you start getting into longer naps, you're going to get into deeper stages of sleep, which are then going to be harder to recover from when you wake up. So, and you don't want to do them obviously too late in the day because then that reduces what's called your sleep drive, which is, you know, adenosine. And if you do it like at 5 p.m., you're going to have a harder time going to sleep. So aim for earlier in the day, aim for shorter. Generally, that would be my advice on that. Right. I was tuning into, I don't know if this was something that I picked up from your Instagram page or from someone else who's 
dedicated sleep expert and, and shares content online, but they were describing something like, like a rubber band, right? And as you, as the day proceeds, you start to stretch, stretch, stretch the rubber band and you want to fall asleep, right? But as you start to take naps, there's less resistance there and you're less likely to get nice, deep, restorative sleep, which is more important than the nap itself. So that's the way that I've seen it. That's the way I understand it. And I didn't really know about the influence of adenosine. Is there any way that we can increase our you know, endogenous adenosine production beyond just avoiding naps? You know? well, well, there's a way to reduce it. And that's what this stuff here, you know, my coffee, right? So <laughs> what, the, what coffee does is it blocks the adenosine receptors. So it prevents it from latching, which is, think of adenosine like a boiler cooker. It's, it's basically building this pressure throughout the day. And then when we go to sleep, that's when it releases. So if you want to delay that, then you would have, you know, things like coffee or caffeine, which are very, very similar to the adenosine molecule. That's why they go to the receptor, they bind it, they block it, and, and that keeps the pressure going for longer. Right. And that's how caffeine works. It gives us the impression or the perception of, of wakefulness. less fatigue and, and, and yeah, a wakefulness, less fatigue. But I know that you know the way our body responds to caffeine consumption is we see an increase in our adenosine receptors, and that's how we build a tolerance to mm -hmm. caffeine. So that's interesting because now you can maybe use that understanding to set the stage for maybe helping you fall asleep earlier, if you notice that you're falling asleep later, or if you want us to try to reduce some of that social jet lag, you know, I think it can be used in a way like a biohack, understanding that the physiology of adenosine and caffeine and the influence there. And I know we can get into, you know, people metabolize caffeine differently than others and more quickly and more slowly. So, you know, if I am now considering the audience, people tuning in now, we discuss a lot of systematic approaches, a lot of, you know, if it may work for you, it may not work for you. So let's say someone is now motivated to get better sleep and they appreciate all of this content, but they want to do testing in a practical way. What are some of the more practical ways to test yourself? Do you absolutely need to have a dedicated sleep expert? Do you need to have a high-end device? What are some of the more practical ways to figure out what works best for you? Maybe journaling, you know, journaling and, and being conscious of your different habits and such. What are some practical? Yeah, I mean, you can start very simple, obviously, with journaling. I know when I attend the American Academy of Sleep Medicine conferences in the past, they would still recommend patients journal. I think at the end of the day, you can't hack what you don't track, right? So even these trackers right now have become very, very inexpensive you probably if you have an apple watch it'll even track right or fitbits or you know or rings or bio straps or at the least if you really want to start getting into sleep tracking and optimization you got to get a little bit of data qualitative is great but quantitative is very useful because it then becomes a driver and you start to see numbers change and we're all geared to get better numbers and scores you know just through education so a fundamental tracker would be great. You don't, you don't even need a tracker. There's apps that will work on the phone as well too that can kind of remote monitor you. So it could be a very simple start. And that's the best way because once you start seeing that data, then you can start seeing the effects of all the different things that you do. What you track, you can manage. Yes. So a couple more questions. I know we're running short on time. I want to get your take on dreams. What do dreams mean? What are they about? And another little question sprinkled in there. I take a supplement called Magteen, which is a brand that makes you know magnesium L3 innate, highly bioavailable magnesium for the brain. And when I take Magteen, my dreams are like hyper realistic, 
hyper-realistic. Like I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I don't know if I'm dreaming or if I'm awake. I don't know what's happening. It's like sometimes when I have bad dreams, I mean, nightmares, you know, it's terrible. It feels like it's real life. So can you tell us about dreams, your take on dreams, what they mean, and maybe why the magazine is having this kind of effect? So my take on dreams is, is a little bit more simple. A lot of people that see me have poor quality of sleep and they're not getting what's called REM sleep. REM is when we are dreaming. For me, their goal is to just get them to have dreams. And you'd be surprised, a lot of people, probably the majority, are not having dreams on a consistent basis. So to me, I'm less concerned with the content of the dreams. I'm more concerned with them having dreams. And they come back and say, you know what, I'm having these crazy dreams now. I go, that's a good sign. That means you're getting into some proper stages of sleep. As far as you know, hacking and, and lucid dreaming and different things like magnesium, you can try those things. I know there's people that say there's, I think there's some St. John's wort or some kind of drink that I've heard that can, can enable more lucid dreaming. I'm not a big dream hacking type person. For me, it's just a matter of you know, getting through the quality stages and, and having those experiences. So I keep it simple. Right, right. And so, I mean, there's all kinds of psychologists that are dedicated to interpreting dreams and what they mean. And not, not even psychologists, people that are, you know, non-scientific trying to interpret dreams and imagine all these kinds of crazy things that they may mean, I may or may not. So very, very interesting that it's for you, it's just a matter of, well, if you're dreaming, great. I think if you're dreaming, you're, you're doing a good job. Right. And then, and then if you want to get into dissecting into, you know, that, that's more in that P section of the psychological, which for some people, they like to go deep into that. To me, I have different priorities. So now tell us, what can we do in the morning, right? What do you think we should do in the morning to make sure that we get better sleep the next day, or maybe just to start the day, some productivity tips. I found that yeah. one of the biggest things is avoiding social media and my phone, and I'll meditate, I'll do my bed, all of that. Yeah, I was going to say, the first thing you want to do is grab your phone, turn it on, and start checking your emails and texts Absolutely and social media. Yeah. Not. You'll have an awesome day. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a great point is, is stay away from triggering things in the morning. And here's the whole theory is when we wake up in the morning, the first five minutes of actually waking up, we're in a deep alpha state, almost in a theta state of brainwave activity. So if you start exposing yourself to negative stuff or triggering stuff, you just ruin that little mini opportunity to really just connect and dial in into the, the morning. So things you, you can do. You know, just some stretching, some breath work, some meditation. I have the brain tap. I know you just had Patrick Porter on there. I'll do a brain yeah. tap meditation in the morning. Drink a bunch of water. I usually drink about three, four glasses of water. Maybe add a little bit of salt or minerals or apple cider vinegar. Get outside, go for a walk. I don't have any pets, but I see people walking their dogs. I'm like, I should probably get a dog so I can get outside <laughs> and just walk more and, and get the sunlight and the morning sunrise. So very simple stuff and cost-effective. I like that you mentioned sunrise because that was actually my follow-up question. What kind of role does the sunrise play in our circadian biology? Right. So the whole point of catching the sunrise is a couple of things. One, it helps obviously boost cortisol, wake you up. The other is that it's more infrared spectrum in the early morning, which can help with recovery, which can help with melatonin accumulation in the pineal gland for later use at night. So there are benefits to sunlight and sunrise exposure. There's also benefits to midday sun exposure. I mean, I usually get like three doses of sun throughout the day. I'll get a morning dose. I'll get an afternoon walk dose for circadian entrainment. And then I'll get a evening dose for just, you know, sunsets and just calming and, and, and soothing. Well, and it goes back to how we're programmed from an evolutionary perspective, right? We're yeah. programmed to wake up with the sun and fall asleep as the sun is starting 
to fall. And so I think that brings us back to, you know, tying all of this in together, right? All these sleep hacks, they seem like biohacks, but I think really it's just a matter of, and this is actually aligned by ancestral supplements, putting back in what the modern world leaves out, right? And trying to cater to our environments, our modern environments, that they are more in, in better alignment with how we're designed from an evolutionary perspective. So my friend, Sleep Biohacker, thank you for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Awesome. And hope you enjoy a lovely night of sleep. <laughs> yes. Uh, you guys have the best night ever. Obviously, you can check out my podcast, Best Night Ever. It's all about the stuff we've talked about. And yeah, look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you. Awesome. Take care. So that's all for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. For all of the show notes, including clickable links to anything and everything that we discussed today, everything from discount codes to videos to research articles, books, tips, tricks, techniques, and of course, to learn more about the guest on today's episode, all you have to do is head to my website, andresprechel.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-S-P-R-E-S-C-H-E-L.com and go to podcasts. You can also leave your feedback, questions, and suggestions for future episodes, future guests, so on and so forth. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you on the next one. Have a lovely rest of your day.